The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager, only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At around noon on Monday, April 19, 1993, fires ignited in the Mount Carmel compound about 13 miles east of Waco, Texas, claiming the lives of 76 people, including 25 children. The events that led up to this, along with details surrounding this case, will be discussed at length in this special installment of Music City 911. Welcome everyone to another edition of Music City 911. I'm your host, Brandon Hall, and this episode, and actually I believe this is going to be a double episode just because there's so much info on this one, uh, I'm going to be running this one on, on my own, just completely solo. So we'll uh, we'll see how this whole solo thing goes. There's a whole lot of info on this. I'm sure you already know the uh, at least some of the details of this case. If you don't, um, I'm going to try to enlighten you. I'm going to take a little bit of all of it, um, some of the reports. going to play some calls from inside the actual compound itself and some of the negotiation calls, give you some of the details, some of the theories behind it. There's just there's a lot to go on, and I'm sure that everyone has an opinion of which way it went one way or another. Um, we all know what actually happened in the end, though. So we'll just have to kind of go from that. So a little bit of background on this from me personally, and I'm sure everybody out there listening that was around then, because this was a while back now. If you were anywhere close to television, you were probably watching this going on when it actually happened. Uh, You may not have seen the initial, you know, barrage there, the ATF raid that they tried to do at first, but most people remember the, the actual flames shooting out the windows of this place and the whole place burning up. I was a younger teenager when this happened and actually happened on my birthday. So it's kind of even more vivid to me uh, just because it's, you know, it happened on a significant day for me. But I remember, you know, watching on TV this happening 
uh, it was, it was pretty substantial. It was, um, an incredible watch. Uh, I mean, not incredible in a good way at all. It's just something that, you know, especially a, a young teenager, like I was, you just, you, you don't see anything like that ever really. And, you know, being a young teenager at that point, I didn't really know too much about what was going on. I was just listening to the news, seeing what was happening, that type thing. Um, I didn't know very much about it run up a little while longer, you know, subsequent birthdays, things like that. When they played back the tapes of the anniversary, things like things along that line, they start bringing up a few more points, a few more, you know, theories, things like that. For me, um, I, I didn't actually look really deep into it until recently when I started researching this episode and there's a whole lot of information about it out there. Reports, uh, statements from witnesses, people from inside the actual complex complex itself, just tons and tons of information. And that's one of the reasons I think this is probably going to be, end up being a two-part episode. The calls that we have, they're pretty long. Um, I think I'll probably play most of them in their entirety with breaks in between uh, to discuss what was being heard on the tapes. Um, some of them are not easy to listen to. Um you just really have to form your own opinion about what's actually happening on the, the, the calls themselves. And, you know, depending on which one it is, if it's the actual nine one one call when this all started, or if this is going to be some of the negotiation tapes, there's a lot to go over. Now this incident itself actually began when the ATF uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms attempted to serve a search warrant there at the compound itself. There was a big gunfight that, ensued directly after that it actually claimed the lives of four of the uh, ATF officers that were there and six of the uh, people inside the compound itself they uh, the whole reason for the warrant in the first place was due to suspicion of uh, stockpiling illegal weapons Uh, there was also some Rumors about uh, possible explosive devices that they were either uh, stockpiling or making inside of there and um, not to do with this warrant, but there's also um, some other allegations of sexual abuse against minors, um, polygamy, things of that nature. Now, to get back at the very first of this and tell you a little bit about the ringleader himself, David Koresh. Uh, he was actually, when this all happened, only 33 years old. It's kind of hard to believe that someone could gain such a following at such a young age like that and lead a group of so many people into what actually happened. A lot of people regard him as a cult leader. Some people just regard him as a religious figure. He himself claimed to be um, the group's final prophet which is someone who, you know, if y'all are not religious out there, that's someone who believes they are one of the few people that can actually talk directly to God. He was actually born Vernon Wayne Howell and was born on August 17th, 1959. His mother was only 14 years old when she gave birth to him. He never met his father. Apparently he ran off with another teenage girl before he was even born and he never met him 
by the time he was four years old, his mother actually left him in the care of his maternal grandmother. And she didn't actually return until he was about seven years old. In some recounts, the Koresh actually described his uh, childhood as being lonely. He had kind of poor study skills, dyslexia, was put in special education classes, and ended up dropping out of high school in his junior year after some of his own run-ins with underage women. He actually ended up moving to Waco, Texas in around 1981. He ended up joining the Branch Davidians, which are a sect of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, kind of a breakaway group almost. When he got there, he played guitar and sang in some church services at the center, which was the headquarters there outside of Waco. At this point, he was still known as Vernon Wayne Howell. He didn't change his name until 1990 when he filed a petition in California State Superior Court in Pomona to change his name for what he claimed publicity and business purposes to David Koresh. Uh, a judge granted the petition later on. And to give you some background on the name change itself and how he arrived at this, Koresh is apparently a biblical name of Cyrus the Great, who was a Persian king. And he was named a Messiah for freeing Jews during the Babylonian captivity. David symbolized lineage directly to the biblical King David. And he was the one the new Messiah would descend. He was professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David, carrying out a divinely commissioned errand. So as you can tell at this point, he's trying to work his way in. He's trying to work his magic with the name change, uh, getting in a new church. Apparently he was originally a Southern Baptist and then he uh, got booted out of that church because he was trying to move in on the, the preacher's daughter and he tried and tried and ended up getting, having to be pushed out of that church and then moved over to the seventh day Adventist and then moved over to Waco to the branch Davidians at that point. It was in 1983 that David claimed that he had found the gift of prophecy or it was given to him by God. He also claimed that God had chosen him to father a child with the widow of the leader of the group who was in her late 60s. And this obviously didn't work. But with uh, what I believe was extra tension from a younger man, the widow, whose name was Lois Roden, allowed him to preach his own message. George Roden, the son of Lois, was the de facto leader of the group when all this was going on. There was a struggle for power and the, the lead of the church. And at one point, George forced David and his followers off the property at gunpoint. From there, uh, Koresh and his people set up a camp, kind of, kind of a camp of sorts, about 90 miles from Waco. They lived in tents and buses for about two years. And during this time, he went to recruit his followers in various states and other countries, United Kingdom, Israel, back into California, places like that. And while he was doing this, most of the church members remaining there at Mount Carmel in Waco still apparently liked Koresh. George Roden's popularity was kind of dwindling. And to regain the faith of those at Mount Carmel, Roden challenged Koresh to about to raise the dead. He exhumed a corpse, 
And when he did, Koresh went to the police to report that he had done that. He had no proof. And because of this, no charges could be filed. Now, I'm going into all this to show what type of person Koresh was. And any of y'all that might have watched the show, which I actually have recently watched the entire limited series they had on, that was from Paramount TV, and it's now available on Netflix, it kind of portrays Koresh as a little kooky, but doesn't really delve into um, his previous run-ins with the law very deeply, especially those with uh, involving firearms. Now back to the inability of prosecution of George Roden for digging up a dead body. Koresh and seven followers, all of them armed, decide to go back to Mount Carmel to take pictures of the body for proof. When that happened, a gunfight broke out, which wounded Roden. And after the sheriffs arrived, Koresh and his followers were charged with attempted murder. His followers were all acquitted and released. And Koresh was released after a mistrial when he told the jury that him and his men were there trying to obtain the evidence of the corpse abuse and were only supposed to shoot at trees. Now, that all doesn't make sense to me, and I think nowadays that wouldn't hold up anywhere. Later, Roden ended up murdering another member of the church who was claiming to be a messiah, and he killed him by putting an axe into his head. Roden, for good reason, was pronounced uh, insane by a court and was imprisoned in a psychiatric hospital. Roden owed thousands in back taxes for the Mount Carmel property, and this was Koresh's way back in. He and his followers raised the money and reclaimed the property. Fast forward years later, and the group's main source of income was selling guns and other items at gun shows, as well as from a gun shop that they ran and owned named Magbag. The investigation into him stemmed from a postal worker informing the local sheriff that he had delivered some explosives to their store and to the Mount Carmel location along with several other suspicious packages. He also stated that he had kind of looked when he was delivering these packages and saw some armed observation posts at Mount Carmel. The sheriff was later notified that the Davidians received two cases of inert grenades, gunpowder, up to 40 cardboard tubes, and 90 pounds of powdered aluminum metal. Now, anybody out there would know that this that's all the kind of makings for grenades, probably some sort of pipe bombs, things along that lines. That uh, aluminum metal that they had, the powdered form, that can be used different ways as well. All of this led up to the affidavit that was signed by an ATF agent, David Aguilera. And from there, a warrant was obtained uh, that led to the whole Waco siege, the one that uh, happened in February of 1993. And to add to the whole explosives thing, some of the illegal gun charges were for modifying existing and or building illegal weapons to stockpile. These were mostly AR-15 or M-16 variants. And there's a there's a pretty big difference in these two guns. For those of you out there that are not gun folk, the AR-15 is a semi-automatic rifle. The operation from the user end 
is no different than the majority of handguns that are available nowadays. You pull the trigger down one time and one bullet gets fired. That's all. Fully automatic, or what most people think of as a machine gun, means that if you pull the trigger, the gun will continue to fire unless uh, un- until you release the trigger or you run out of bullets. Modifying these weapons to become fully automatic is relatively easy and inexpensive to do, but it's highly illegal. Doing this is not some sort of a slap on the wrist and receive a fine type charge either. Federally, the standard sentence for this is 10 years imprisonment. So when all this was established, warrants were issued for Koresh and some of the other members of the church. There was also speculation of a methamphetamine lab that was in use, but nothing was ever verified on that. Add to that the allegations of child abuse, polygamy, and statutory rape. It looked, at least from an outsider's view, that there was some very messed up stuff going on inside that compound. Now, moving up a little bit closer to the actual initial raid itself by the ATF, there were several claims, one of them by a journalist from Spin Magazine, that Koresh would go out jogging uh, for exercise the same time and the same route daily. You know, And that's actually likely true. And that would have made it made it pretty easy for the ATF to pick him up on that warrant. But he wasn't the only one listed on the warrant. Several others that were inside the compound were, were named as well. And in my opinion, if they were to have arrested Koresh while jogging, the potential for violence would have been probably even worse than what happened. If their leader were to be captured outside, they would have been on an even higher alert. So, if, you know, when the ATF rolled up in force, they would have, you know, possibly been met with gunfire before they even stopped. Not saying this would have 100% happened this way, but I think the likelihood of it going down like that was a pretty good possibility. So moving up even closer to the actual raid itself, there were a few things that actually kind of played against, well, at least the ATF and maybe even the branch divisions themselves. I say this because, you know, if anyone has actually watched the show, they had one of their agents that actually went inside and, you know, met with Koresh a few times. And even the day that the the raid was going to happen, he was there. And as far as I can tell from my research, that was most likely true. All that probably actually did happen. I don't know if he tipped them off saying they were going to come or not, but there was something else that actually did happen that, that absolutely tipped them off that, that they were on the way. So another thing that actually did happen on the show that this, this part was true. And a lot of the show itself, there was some, you know, and I've kind of talked about it already. I won't say misinformation. They just kind of left out a lot of stuff. This part looked like it was true. So because of a news article that came out and was printed that Koresh was reading there, there was a little bit of a, I guess, uneasy feeling inside of the, the compound itself. And with Koresh, he kind of felt that there was something impending that it was going to happen at some point. And they were already a little bit on edge. So because of this article that came out and maybe being tipped off by someone, a local news station went out there and was trying to find the place. And when they actually were kind of close to the place, uh, they stopped on the side of the road and asked a postal worker where the place was because the news guy couldn't find out. He, he couldn't find where it was at all. And from there, uh, 
while he was getting directions from the guy, a bunch of civilian vehicles rolled by all in a convoy all together. It was a mixture of station wagons, SUVs, and what looked like cattle haulers, you know, trucks with a cattle trailer behind them. And all of them were loaded up with ATF agents, you know, loaded up, you know, kitted out the whole deal. So the postal worker turned out to be David Koresh's brother-in-law. So apparently he ran as fast as he could, you know, with his, in his postal vehicle over there and warned that they were going to come. So that part in the, the show was actually true. That did happen. So going on a little bit further with the, the amount of weapons, possibility of explosives, things like that, you know, just the general likelihood of the entire compound being heavily loaded with weapons and, and more. I can, I can see why the ATF wanted to go in there, you know, prepared for the worst. And even with that in mind, they really actually didn't prepare enough. The gun battle lasted their estimates. Uh, I don't know if there, there's an exact number or not, uh, anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes up to two hours for the initial actual, uh, gunfight. And, and by the end of that, the ATF officers actually started running out of ammo. They had to pull back. Not only this, but they had no way to communicate with any field office or other agencies. Now, you have to keep in mind that this was back in 1993. Cell phones weren't widely used back then. And they they brought no radios with them. And that's, this may seem even more odd, but from a, a dispatch in, I can almost see their reasoning uh, for this for several reasons. They likely probably have their own radio frequencies, being they were from a federal and also non-local agency. And uh, to the fact that back then in rural Texas, I would imagine that they didn't have the best of radio systems, if any at all. And even if they did, with the sparse population in that area of Texas, coverage would probably probably be spotty at best. A lot of smaller agencies there didn't even have working radio systems back, even back in the 90s. And keep in mind that something as basic as 911, calling 911 in the early 90s, wasn't available in all areas. I lived in a really, really rural part of Tennessee, out in West Tennessee, in the early 90s. And they had just gotten out on one. And to give you an idea of what they had to do when they got that system, they updated their mapping system as well. This doesn't have anything to do with this case. Just This just kind of tells you what happened. And, you know, how it was out there, maybe even in West Texas. But in West Tennessee... This was, you know, people had to name dirt roads. And when I say name dirt roads, I mean the first person who lived on that road, his name was Bill Smith. That became Bill Smith Road. That's how it was in the early 90s. And I'm sure it probably was about the same way out there. So I say all this uh, about the radio systems, you know, the radio aspect things. I'm talking about it for a reason. The calls we're about to listen to kind of really spell it out. And um, in addition to that, on the ATF end, because they had no reinforcements, they had no extra ammo, They, what they brought with them, that's all they had. So the news guy that was there that finally showed up with everybody else, they actually asked him if he had a phone so he could call for help. And he did. He ended up calling in for help and the... Sheriff's Department came out and 
you know, of course, that everybody knows the FBI was notified past that about what happened, and they came out as well. But we're going to go ahead and get into the first 911 call, and this is a call from inside the compound right after the, the shooting started. 911, what's your emergency? 911, what's your emergency? There are men, 75 men around our building okay, just, shooting at us. Just a moment. This Lynch. Hello? 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 Yeah, this is Lieutenant Lynch. May I help you? Yeah, there are 75 men around our building and they're shooting at us in Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here and to call it off. All right, all right. Uh, hello? I hear gunfire. Oh, shit. Hello? Who is this? Hello? Call it off! Who is this? Maybe tied up. He may. 
Kibira Lumera. Yeah, we've got we've got their notes there, National Response Team. Call me Gene, call me. Somebody needs to know. I'm trying to get hold of me, but I wanted to let someone know that I believe this line is, is open into the compound in case we need to do some negotiation. So just hang, hang fire. Okay. All right. All right. A lot of people hollering. It sounded like a lot of people hollering. We'll see how good my negotiation skills are here, hopefully. God almighty. They already had the land. They had the land. Um, they've been out there what, was it 30 years? They've, yeah, what, the 50s and they moved out there? Mount Carmel. Over there off Mount Carmel. Where, where Vanguard is. Shooting again. And it's automatic weapon fire, sounds like it. So in that first call, we have one of the residents inside by the name of Wayne, and he is supposedly their kind of in-house lawyer from what I've uh, read and researched a little bit. He, I, I can't remember if he was actually a lawyer or not. At one point, he may have been. I don't know. But he was the one um, in the series. He, he was in the series as well uh, on TV. And... You know, there was obviously a lot of stuff going on there. And it sounded like they at least may have had some calls before this um, about what was going on out there because they immediately got the sheriff deputy that was on there, the lieutenant. They got him on the line. And, you know, he started talking almost immediately, trying to get some negotiation going, at least some. And in a situation like that, when you've got bullets flying, you know, loud noises from the guns, everything like that, it's, it's hard to do any type of negotiation and we'll, we'll kind of see that in the next couple calls as well. It's not easy to do. Um, one of the things about dispatching and a lot of places, including Nashville, we do have negotiation classes for us dispatchers. It's mostly for suicidal type stuff, but in situations like this, it's rare, but we, you know, occasionally we'll have something we have to be on the phone and actually be the negotiator. Um, uh, my guest, Kim, a couple of episodes ago, she was talking about it too, how she had to stay on the phone with somebody for three hours when he was in a standoff. So it can happen. I'm sure that some of the dispatchers out there in the agencies listening, they've probably had something like that happen before. So, um, in this case, the Lieutenant may have been, you know, likely had more negotiation uh, skills than the dispatcher did. And like I said, it, I've got a feeling they probably had some more calls. I'm not sure about inside from inside there or not, but, maybe from neighbors or there's no telling, but as soon as they figured out that it was a call from inside the Mount Carmel compound, 
the dispatcher immediately handed over to the sheriff's uh, lieutenant and he got on there, started talking. Now at the end of the call, it sounds like they got disconnected and uh, he was trying to make a call back. Well, when they called back, this is what happened. Um, they got him back on the line, but it's, uh, it's a little bit different. And uh, especially with people that are <laughs> younger out there may not know what an answer machine is. Well, for those people, an answer machine is kind of like a voicemail, but it was an actual machine that you had hooked up to your main uh, landline. And if somebody wanted to leave a message or something, they could. But most of them had a speaker function as well, so it recorded the message out loud as it was being played. So if you were to call somebody back and they didn't answer, you know, you could, you know, if they were screening a phone call or something like that, because not, not everybody had caller ID back then either. So if they were screening a phone call or something like that and they just wanted to hear who it was, you could say over the, the actual answer machine, hey, it's, it's so-and-so, pick up. And, you know, if, if they're sitting there listening, they can go over there and pick up the phone. So that's kind of where we get to in this next one. Please leave your name, telephone number, and a message after the beep. Thank you. They hear your voice, maybe. Hello. This is Lance Sheriff's Office. This is Lieutenant Lance of the Sheriff's Office. Pick up the phone. Lieutenant Lance, McLennan County Sheriff's Department. Pick up the phone, please. Someone pick up the phone. This is Lance Sheriff's Department. Hello. Someone there, pick up the phone, please. Got hopes. Hello. Hello. Who is this? Is this Wayne? Hello, this is Lance Sheriff's Office. Wayne? Who is this, Wayne? What? Who is this, Wayne? Listen, calm down and talk to me for a minute, okay? Who is this? Calm down and talk. Talk to me. Who is this? Wayne. Wayne. Tell me what's happening, Wayne. This is Lynch at the sheriff's office. Tell me what's happening, Wayne. Talk to me, Wayne. Let's get this thing resolved, Wayne. We got women and children in danger. Okay, Wayne. Are there weapons in there with you, Wayne? Talk to me, Wayne. Let's let's take care of the children and the women, Wayne. Let's not do anything foolish that we'll be sorry for. Talk to me, Wayne. I can't help you if you want. Talk to me. Wayne. Wayne. Please talk to me, Wayne. Let's work it out. Wayne. Okay, Wayne, work with me. Come to the phone and talk to me, Wayne. Let's settle this now before anybody gets hurt. Is anybody hurt in there, Wayne? I need to get home somewhere to tell Yeah! Who's hurt, Wayne? Wayne, if you are, do you have weapons in there? 
Wayne. Wayne, do you have weapons in there? Talk to me, Wayne, before this thing gets completely out of hand. Wayne. Wayne, talk to me. You said, Wayne? No. Wayne, are there people injured in there? Yeah. All right. Wayne, what we need you to do, what weapons do you have in there? You need to lay your weapons down, and let's get some help for your people. to get in touch with them, Wayne. Are you, we need you to lay your weapons down. Stand by while I make contact with the forces, okay? Okay. Alright. Are you injured, Wayne? I'm under fire. Okay, I know you're under fire, but are you hurt? Okay. Wayne, cease firing. Do not fire anymore. Okay? Wayne, talk to me, Wayne. Tell me how you are. I have a right to defend myself. And started firing first. Okay, well, let's resolve it. Let's not, let's resolve this, Wayne, before someone gets hurt. Okay? I'm trying to make contact with the forces outside. Okay? Okay. All right. I don't hear any gunfire. Are you okay? No more. Okay. Is anybody in there with you hurt, Wayne? Okay. There was a man screaming. Okay, a man's hurt. All right. You may call me back. Nobody's Hold on, Wayne. Well, I'm, don't let this line close, okay? Where are up here? Pardon me? They're still attacking. All right. Another chopper with more people and more guns going off. Here they come. All right. Wayne, come. More firing. That's not us. That's them. Okay. That, all right. Are you, are you ready to come out and give up? Are you ready to terminate this, Wayne? We want to free fire.
Okay. Wayne, okay. are you getting the word passed? Go on, All right. Um. Right, are you getting the word out? I'm trying. Okay. Stand by. One confirmed dead. 
gunfire still they were trying to negotiate a ceasefire between the two of them to me it kind of sounded like the gunfire was still happening from inside the place it, it didn't sound like it was coming from outside i've been on the phone with people before that have been shooting from inside the place you know inside of a house or something like that and i've heard it being shot from outside they are two completely different sounds and that sounded like to me anyway that it was coming from the inside even though they said they had stopped firing i just don't think they did but there was a lot of just a lot of everything going on. It, it's, uh, you know, and like I said, the, the whole negotiation process with something like that, it's, it's really, really slow going when you have something along that lines. I'm glad that at some point they finally did manage to, you know, cause a ceasefire, um, get some stuff worked out. And, and our next portion of this, our, our next episode We'll have some more calls from inside there. We'll have uh, David Koresh himself. He gets on the phone, and I actually believe that he he was probably on the phone at least for a portion of it while uh, this Wayne guy was on the phone as well. And you could kind of hear uh, Steve as another member, kind of uh, from from what I've gathered, is he was David Koresh's right hand man in the the whole deal. He got on the phone too, and he'll get on on the call as well on the the next one. We'll have that, and we'll actually have some of the actual hostage negotiator calls uh, from the FBI on the next episode. So closing out this episode, uh, I'll go ahead and give our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter again. Uh, we're at all of them. It's at Music City 911. You can follow us on all of those. Get on uh, our Facebook podcast discussion page if you wanted to talk about this episode or any of the other ones. Get on there and just chat with us and We'll give you feedback. Uh, we'll we'll reply to you. Uh, have a good time doing it. And help support the podcast by jumping on to patreon.com slash musiccity911. And also wanted to give a shout out to another one of some friends of ours and another podcast. They do a great job. Extremely detailed with their podcast. Sounds really good. The whole deal. Uh, Scarlet TCP. They are based out of, uh, I believe, California. And, uh, I've listened to a few of their episodes. I'm telling you, they, they really get down into the, the details of stuff and have some really good chats along with different, uh, going on different cases. And it's, it's just a lot of fun to listen to. So, uh, I've been chatting with one of their hosts here lately, uh, Sonia, and 
their other host, uh, Brittany, they just do a great job. And I'd like to play for y'all uh, their trailer for their podcast. And until next time, I'm Brandon Hall from Music City 911. Hey, podcast fans. We are the ladies of Scarlet TCP. I'm Sonia Mazelion, and I'm Brittany Sherman. Scarlet TCP is a true crime podcast and member of the Pod All the Time podcast network. Scarlet features the unique and entertaining perspective of a couple of ladies who decided to turn our daily conversations about crime and murder into a podcast. Listen every Sunday and every other Wednesday for new episodes about the events surrounding and our unique analysis of true crimes. Listen to our companion episodes and top threes episodes to hear our take on true crime and entertainment and learn more about our passions. Follow Scarlet TCP on Twitter at Scarlet Podcast and Instagram at scarlet.tcp and listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and everywhere podcasts are available. 